the University of Tennessee Howard H. Baker Jr. Center for Public Policy, and the Knox County Public Library are partners in a community study of the book Justice as Fairness, a Restatement by John Rawls. The following recording is part two in a five-part series. In this episode, Otis Stevens of the UT College of Law leads us through the principles of justice. Welcome to the Baker Center. Um, We're in the, the second part of our collective effort to understand justice as fairness, as restated by John Rawls which we hope will lead up to all of you being part of an audience in which we further try to learn about Rawlsian liberalism in context, engaging the philosophical foundations of politics and public policy, which just happens to be something the Baker Center is very interested in. If you think the book is challenging, which I surely do, but in a wonderful way, The conference will explore the relationship between Rawls's thought, which, of course, we will have a better understanding of by the time we get to the conference. Uh, If it's not the relationships between that thought and 20th century economics and political economy, analytic philosophy, American pragmatist thought, normative theorizing of American foreign policy, and international relations and theological ethics, and political theology. What a wonderful Friday, February 26th, starting in the afternoon and then all day on Saturday, February 27th here um, at the Baker Center. I think this is just a wonderful opportunity for the university and the community to get together and really do some deep thinking about our political system and the ideas that underlay it. My colleague, Professor Joe Cook, started us off last time, and I think got us off to an excellent start. Um, It's my pleasure to introduce another colleague and friend since 1974 when we moved in two doors up the street from Otis Otis Stevens, so a friend and a colleague, so it's a special pleasure to introduce him tonight. Otis is originally and still a distinguished member of our political science department faculty. After his term in office as associate dean in the College of Arts and Sciences, the law school perpetrated a coup d'etat. And we now have Otis Stevens as the College of Law's resident scholar in constitutional law. And he's been with us now um, since 2000. He has authored, co-authored six books on the U.S. Constitution Um, and the Supreme Court, numerous articles. He co-teaches the Law College's jurisprudence course with Professor Cook um, and has been grappling with John Rawls in connection with that course. Today, we will have the opportunity to get further guidance about part two. And part one was, of course, our fundamental ideas, and now a somewhat narrower, more focused topic, but nonetheless fairly grand, Principles of Justice. Without further ado, my friend and colleague, Otis Stevens. Well, thank you, Carl. I appreciate those comments. And uh, let's get started and feel free to chime in with a question or comment as we go along. I'd like to go back just a little bit, and I'm not going to review part one by any means, but I am going to make a few comments which flow from my reading and of part one and also from our discussion last week. Start out by looking at the use of the term political philosophy to describe the focus of justice as fairness. That is the focus of this book, very specifically and very clearly articulated by Rawls on numerous occasions throughout the volume. One task of political philosophy, Rawls tells us, is to determine whether some underlying basis a philosophical and moral agreement exists for resolving divisive conflicts within society, and if not, whether deep-rooted differences, philosophical and moral opinions, can be narrowed so that, and I'm quoting here briefly, social cooperation on a footing of mutual respect among citizens can still be maintained. Now, while Rawls does not confine his analysis to a single political entity, and we saw that last week in Professor Cook's discussion, nevertheless, 
he gives primary or major attention to the conflict between liberty and equality that has characterized or figured prominently in American political thought for at least two and a half centuries. So there is a kind of orientation toward the American scene, but note that Rawls does not confine himself to a single political entity, a single nation or country, but his focus is on democratic theory. He talks about the different roles of political philosophy, and one of which I think is rather interesting and important. Political philosophy's contribution to how a people, a people, think of their political and social institutions as a whole and their basic aims and purposes as a society with a history, a society with a history, a nation as opposed to their aims and purposes as individuals, members of families, and associations. That that focus on people identifying with a particular nation or culture is important and is different from individual consideration outside the broader political context. This distinction that uh, Rawls makes reinforces or further explains Rawls' emphasis on political philosophy. Political philosophy, as Rawls views it, and he never quite, he never quite defines the term, at least I didn't, I didn't find a clear definition of it. He's talking about resolving conflict through the allocation of values, the allocation of power. Ultimately, the exercise of power is important, but he is focusing on democratic participation in organizing and giving structure to justice's fairness. Rawls emphasizes that the most fundamental idea is that of society as a fair system of social cooperation over time from one generation to the next. He uses this idea as the central organizing idea in trying to develop a political conception of justice for a democratic regime. Note also the idea of citizens as free and equal persons, and of a well-ordered society. Now, Rawls goes into great detail in trying to explain what he means by free and equal. He doesn't mean that people are identical, but there is a dimension of equality in recognizing the dignity, ultimately the significance of individuals. And that's where his equality, I think, comes into play. He assumes that citizens in a democratic society have at least an implicit understanding of basic laws and of the interpretation of constitutional rights and liberties. He seems to assume this. My question when I read that, and I've read it several times, is this. Is he right about this? Or are people too uninformed to engage in the process of democratic decision-making in a meaningful way? Rawls is very optimistic about that. And I would like to agree with him. I am inclined to think that people do have that capacity, but it's an interesting question, I think. Social cooperation, which he emphasizes, is distinguished from socially coordinated activity. It is guided by publicly recognized rules and procedures. Rules and procedures are very important to Rawls. You'll notice as you go through this. But they're not rules and procedures that are imposed on people from above. They're widely shared by citizens. And that also is a part of his uh, definition of the democratic process. Rawls emphasizes over and over again his recognition of, of society in which everyone accepts and knows that everyone else accepts the very same conception of political justice. Throughout, Rawls stresses the importance of mutuality, of reciprocity. His challenge is to show how these values are to everyone's advantage. That differences in wealth and um, opportunity, perhaps, in talent, in fortune or luck, do not indicate inequality of citizenship. He talks about equality of citizenship, and that is a very important notion. Other concepts covered in part one 
uh, of this book and that were, were discussed last week include the basic structure of society. That's given a lot of attention in part two, by the way, as well as in part one and throughout the book. How things fit together in, in the basic structure, how uh, certain institutions fit together into one system of social cooperation. Rawls recognizes what he calls reasonable overlapping consensus. These are just some of the terms that you see throughout this material. As I see it, what Rawls does is to provide a framework for analysis. Not much specificity. He's not prescriptive. He doesn't tell people what they should believe or what kind of system they should try to develop. He he wants the procedures within which people can make up their own minds. Justice is fairness is not also a comprehensive religious, philosophical, or moral doctrine. We talked about that last week. Not a comprehensive religious, philosophical, or political doctrine. Now, that doesn't mean that individuals within Rawlsian society may not themselves have comprehensive sets of beliefs, comprehensive doctrines. They may. But the, the overall system, the overall theory of justice does not reflect, as did, let us say, some of the regimes uh, during the period of the Reformation, which led to religious wars in the 17th and 18th century. Uh, Not comprehensive systems of doctrine in that way. Justice's fairness is a political conception of justice for the special case of the basic structure of modern democratic society. Last week, we were introduced and we'll be talking a lot more about these concepts as we go along, to such notions or concepts as the original position, the veil of ignorance, the idea of representative citizens. Notice that Rawls, when he talks about persons, is talking about representative persons, not just every single individual out there. He refers also throughout his presentation to the two moral powers. Professor Cook sketched these last week, and I'll just repeat them very briefly here, the two moral powers. One, the capacity for a sense of justice. And two, a capacity for a conception of the good. We also talked uh, some last week about reflective equilibrium, an idea that uh, appears on several, at several points throughout this discussion. There must be room for intuition, for considered judgments. Reasonable pluralism is also a factor that needs to be taken into account. Rawlsian society presumes a high level of pluralism, no single approach, no single perspective. Pluralism. And as I mentioned before, overlapping consensus is another notion that is explained in some detail. Now, turning to part two, I suppose the best place to begin is... uh, to look at the restatement by Rawls of the two principles of justice. If you note, this is over, if you're following along, section 13, two principles of justice. Now, these principles of justice were set forth in the original theory of justice, which came out in 1971. And they were stated in the original. I might go back and just read them to you as they were originally stated back in 1971 and again in 1999. The first principle, each person is to have an equal right to the most extensive scheme of equal basic liberties compatible with a similar scheme of liberties for others. Liberty, I think the word liberty is there, not liberties, for others. And second, or B, social and economic inequalities are to be arranged so that they are both A, reasonably expected to be to everyone's advantage and be attached to positions and offices open to all. Now, that's the original statement of the two principles. Note how Rawls has modified them in uh, Justice's Fairness. Here's the way the two principles now read, 13.1. This is A. Each person has the same indivisible claim to a fully adequate scheme of equal basic liberties, which scheme is compatible with the same scheme of liberties for all. That's the first one. And that is a little different. The way it was first stated, I think the word is liberty. Is that right? Not liberties. And B, this is the second part of the two principles. 
Social and economic inequalities are to satisfy two conditions. First, they are to be attached to offices and positions open to all under conditions of fair equality of opportunity. And second, they are to be to the greatest benefit of the least advantaged members of society. That's the difference principle. And we go into considerable detail in part two of this uh, short book on the difference principle. Now, let me stop at this point and see if anybody has any questions. I've, I've been, actually, I thought, I thought I would have been interrupted before now, but um, I haven't been. So let me, let me see if anybody has any questions or any points you'd like to pursue further before we, before we move on. Uh, one question yeah, yes. from here. Um, as you see the differences in the formulation of the principles, do you see Rawls being more specific? Um, He's trying to be a little more specific. And in effect, um, heightening the standards reflected in the principles that we would use as we as we tried to assess any given political yeah. system against these standards. Well, let's see what he says about that, Carl. He says that the revisions in the second principle, that is that one which talks about inequalities, he says are merely stylistic. (laughs) So he didn't intend to change much there. But as to the first one, as to the first principle, I think he saw himself as, as saying more. Consider now the reasons for revising the first principle. One is that the equal basic liberties in this principle are specified by a list as follows. In other words, the basic liberties he wants to be spelled out. And by the way, all this, as Professor Cook mentioned last week, all, these, all this material is to be taken in, in serial order. The first principle comes first, lexical order. And it refers, these basic liberties, to constitutional freedoms, thought and liberty of conscience, political liberties, for example, the right to vote, to participate in politics, and freedom of association, as well as the rights and liberties specified by the liberty and integrity, physical and psychological, of the person. And finally, the rights and liberties covered by the rule of law. So those liberties are are basically the constitutional liberties, and they come first. Before you get to the difference principle, before you get to uh, trying to determine equality of opportunity and to apply the difference principle, you have to make sure that the first principle liberties are recognized. So that, uh, I think, is an attempt, Carl, to, to be a little more specific as to at least the first of these two principles. I understand that uh, his focus is primarily on, on the grand principles, and he talks about constitutional law and the rule of law. Yep. Does he ever move to specific laws, or does he keep it above that level? Well, he, occasionally you will find him making reference to controversial issues, but basically he, keeps it, he, he tries to keep it at a fairly, fairly high level of generality. In other words, he's not trying to be prescriptive. What he's trying to do is to provide a framework in which people can consider a a lot of alternatives and make up their own minds about what ultimately to approve or disapprove. He talks a lot about the the right to vote and participation, but he doesn't tell you how to vote. He He doesn't say there is one particular approach one particular kind or set of um, uh, solutions to particular political problems. What he's concerned about is the framework, the methodology, if you want to put it that way, of decision-making. What do you think about this list of basic liberties, by the way? Has he left any out? Are Are there other basic liberties that we might want to add? And by the way, you can always do that. What Rawls lists here, he does not list as altogether um, exhaustive or conclusive. You don't have a set, a fixed set of basic liberties. They may expand as people understand that the idea of liberty changes. But what do you think about the list that he has here in this, in this book, the few that we've already been over? Has he left out any that, are, that, are now, that you would recognize, for example, as basic liberties that are not here? You've got speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association, freedom of thought, Autonomy of the individual. 
privacy is sort of implicit here, isn't it? But it's not really spelled out. You're right. Yeah, I think privacy clearly. Yeah. Bear arms. <laughs> the right to bear arms. <laughs> I don't know how uh, how Rawls would view that. He uh, he would say, well, if it's you know if, if it's related to um, a way to preserve the society, to protect it from uh, the overthrow of uh, tyran- by tyrannical forces, then maybe he would see it as a basic liberty, possibly. He says nothing about. Uh right to hold property or, more specifically, a right to have property free of arbitrary seizure by the state. And I wonder if, that's, he, he, if he that doesn't... right would be incompatible with his – he talks about uh, yeah. structuring he, economic inequalities. He, and... doesn't, uh, he doesn't mention property in this list, but elsewhere in his writing, he does seem to presuppose a property-owning democracy, does he not? So that I think there is room in Rawls for recognition of property ownership. But you're right. He does not specify it here. Uh, Otis, could, yeah. could, could the question be turned around a little bit? Is uh, the set of, of liberties that he does enumerate the yeah. minimal set below which he can't yeah. imagine a democratic below which society? You can't, yeah, below which you can't go, right? Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. He, this, this is a suggested list. It's not an exhaustive list. The idea is what is actually essential to the operation of a democratic society in which persons are viewed as equal, at least with respect to citizenship. What about uh, right to uh, health care? I was thinking about that myself. What about the right to health? Is that an emerging right that might some, at some point figure in the basic rights of a constitutional regime, quite possibly, quite possibly. Think back on which of these, which rights that we now recognize as fundamental constitutional rights have always been with us under our constitutional system, or or perhaps if you want to think about the British Constitution, not to limit ourselves to the United States. Freedom of speech, certainly. Freedom of conscience, which includes religious thought or the rejection of religion, for that matter. Professor Stevens. Yes. Does every entitlement have to rise to the level of a right? I, I don't would think so. I, don't I, think so. I would suspect not. And no. so you, you, I might, so. you might reason your way to where there is an entitlement to health care without there being the kind of – without that going onto the list – Right, that you've enumerated there. It depends on what, on what we assume about what we, what we now call health care. Health care is, is, is a sort of a new notion that, that has not been fully explored. The right to life itself may imply something at some point along the way that would be comparable to health care. But, no, I don't think every entitlement, and I don't think Rawls would recognize that every entitlement would have to rise to the level of a basic right. Any other questions? Yes. Dr. Stevens, yes, ma'am. I'd like to hear a, a bit more of what you were enumerating rights that have been emergent rights. Emergent rights? Uh-huh. Well, I th- somebody mentioned the right of privacy a while ago. That's certainly one of the most important emergent rights in our system. And in, in American constitutional law, the right of privacy, of course, is implicit in certain other provisions of the Bill of Rights, like the Fourth Amendment, the Protection Against Unreasonable Searches and Seizures, the Fifth Amendment, the right against compulsory self-incrimination. But the Constitution doesn't spell out a right of privacy. The word privacy does not appear in that document, so far as I know. And yet, the value of privacy has, has been there in one way or another since probably since the beginning. It finally became explicit by the, on the part of the Supreme Court back in the mid-60s, the Connecticut birth control case in 1965. And it was seen then as what the court called a penumbral right. It was linked to several other provisions of the Constitution, but no single provision was, was, was given priority over the others. That's one emergent right. What about the right of association? That seems to me to have been implicit in the First Amendment of the Constitution, the right to, of freedom of association. But again, the word association doesn't appear there. We have a petition for redress of grievances, but not association as such. 
And yet, freedom of speech itself implies some associational right. Um, Professor Stevens? Yes. You mentioned among the original list the uh, the right of uh, free thought. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was in the the Bill of Rights. Would that be considered an emergent? Freedom of thought? Yeah, I I think uh, that was a 20th century conception, I I think, as a result of public relations, propaganda. What about, uh, it's a good question. What about um, freedom of religion uh, or freedom of speech? Don't those words connote thought processes? The word thought is not there. That's true. But certainly the idea of thought, free thought, in um, the free exercise of religion, for instance, is is certainly there. But I see what you're driving at. Well, well, I was thinking in in terms of um, emerging totalitarian control, Mm -hmm. there was was wrong thinking uh, in a society that didn't even recognize religion or in our own times, uh, politically correct thinking and so forth. It seems to be associated with proper character as much as religion. What kind of individual is Rawls assuming when he talks about persons as free and equal citizens? What is he assuming about these individuals? Otis, it's Joan. I'm, I'm glad yes. you asked this question because yes. I had a question about this. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you said earlier that this is not really a moral or religious text, and yet he talks about in that context these two moral powers that the two moral uh, powers, yes. Yeah, that citizens have. And, and in fact, throughout the book, as I read it, the concept of morality is is peppered really throughout all the parts of the book. And so it does seem to be a text uh, in some sense about morality, although I guess in a, in a narrow but how does, but how does political he def- context. Yeah, how, does he, how does he define or what, his two moral powers? The first one talks about a sense of justice. Right. And the second one talks about a theory of the good. That doesn't... Uh, clarify very much for me as to what he means by morality. No, although he does seem to be seeing it. He, when when yeah. he discusses these things, he talks about political justice all the time. He does seem to be, in some sense, talking about morality in a system where there are some people who have power over other people. He, he, he's certainly bothered by the exercise of arbitrary power over individuals who cannot stand up against it. He is concerned about the exercise of arbitrary power. That's unfair. That's part of his notion of fairness, it seems to me. Those moral capacities suggest human beings as opposed to artificial persons. I Mm -hmm. I wonder how Rawls would react to extending freedom of speech to artificial entities like (laughs) corporations in light, well, of the, in, in light of what the Supreme Court recently said about yeah. campaign finance? I don't want to get off into that topic, mm-hmm. but I think it does raise well, I the think, I think that's a fair questions question. about how you that's apply fair... this to changes in our political th- organization over time. I think when Rawls talks about persons, he's not thinking about corporations. But he might be. I mean, I guess he could be, but it seems to me he's talking about human beings. We have all kinds of legal fictions. The corporation, as you know, being a professor in this field, corporations are legally, seen as legally as persons. What about the difference principle? Do you understand the difference principle, which is discussed at some length in this part? What, is, what do you suppose Rawls is driving at when he, when, he, when he introduces the difference principle? First of all, he, he wants to make sure that whatever is done, whatever decisions are made in a democratic society, if they are to be regarded as legitimate decisions, they advance the interests of the least advantaged people in society. They may advantage everyone else, the most advantaged as well as the least advantaged, but they must advantage the least advantaged and actually more so, as I understand it. Now, that's an interesting idea. Make your decisions so that it um, benefits to the greatest possible degree the least advantaged people. Otis, it seems like it's a it's a concept of of sort of allocational fairness that yes. that he's after here, mm-hmm. not redistributing the benefits so everybody gets them equally, but oh, redistributing no. not, not them in a way that seems fair, reasonable, you know, in terms of his reasonable pluralism concept and and fairness that is advantageous to everyone, but especially to the least advantaged. Now, how do we def- how does he define? How does he de- he does try to define the least advantaged? people, or at least advantaged persons in our society. What does he base that on? As I see it, it's based primarily on wealth. Isn't that right? 
yeah, wealth and power. Wealth and power. Right? It's almost Kantian. He, he seems like he's taking a big chapter from Kant yep. to me. Go ahead. Certainly. It, it, it's, it's, it's very close to be. it seems to me, very close to being a categorical imperative. It has yes. that kind of a ring to it. And I think it's the most revolutionary thing he says in this whole book. That is the difference principle? So yes, sir. Yes, I, I, think, I think so. And the categorical imperative, there are many ways to say it, but, but why don't you, uh, what's your understanding of the categorical imperative? Can you give us a restatement of it? No, I think it's denser than, it's more complicated. Well, one, it, reason, one statement of it is that you, whatever decision that is made uh, would be one that could be universally applied, right? Universal application. It is, a, it is a very complicated concept. It's something akin to, I suppose, the golden rule, but it's not quite that. It's not quite that. Another question. Go ahead. Assuming that these principles are supposed to be applied to the overall structure of the governance system the as opposed to, mm-hmm. to individuals, yep. that we're, we're looking at, at principles to determine yes. the fairness of the overall um, system. Mm-hmm. Um, try to help me understand how a system, a political system, can be judged with respect to its effect on the least advantaged in the society. Um, is it a question as to whether the system is designed in effect to that it doesn't shift wealth from the least advantaged to the more advantaged? But that it actually has to be, but the system has to be designed to assure that the strongest do not gain at the expense of the yeah. and weakest. That's, is that's that the is key, that the idea? That they do not gain at the expense of that the opportunities for the least advantaged, especially opportunities for education, opportunities to develop their talents and abilities to the fullest possible degree, are there. That's important for Rawls. I think Rawls and um, you can question me on this if you like. I think Rawls implicitly recognizes a central role for education in democratic society so that Rawls would probably, and this would go beyond current uh, federal constitutional interpretation in this country, Rawls would recognize, I think, a fundamental right to education. Let's see, is uh, Professor Reedy, are you here? You're here, aren't you? Reedy's not here? What about Cook? Is Cook here? My helpers are not here. <laughs> okay, I'll say it with even more confidence since they're not going to be here to, they're not going to be here to question me on this. I'll, I'll tell them tomorrow what I said. I think education is absolutely fundamental to Rawls' theory of justice. He likes the idea of people living up to their potential. When he talks about deservedness as opposed to, to desert in this uh, essay, he says, of course, you're... you're People are not entitled to be born wealthy or to be born in a favored position. That's not, that's not what he's talking about. But he does say that people may take advantage of opportunities that they have to learn, to become educated, and in that sense, they deserve recognition. He recognizes that. And I think that's an important aspect of his, of his, of his work. Otis? Otis? Yes. Uh, it seems to me that there's some sort of, well, that one of the of the discussion tonight that we didn't have as much of, at least, the first time around, is this question of what do terms mean? Like like rights, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone has brought up the question of entitlements Mm -hmm. with respect to the rights. And I kept thinking when she was speaking that he doesn't say anything about a right to education. But he talks but, about the importance of education and, over and over again. Yes, but it seems to me that his terms are slipping and sliding around. <laughs> yeah. and well, one, one might draw that conclusion, I suppose. Well, it's going to be difficult yeah. to, to move through these sessions without really very many books available that well, each of us can read. And sure. then it puts the, puts the speaker, Joe Cook first and you now, on a real hot seat. Yeah. Well, he's dealing with a lot of very, as you say, slippery ideas. The very concept of rights itself is, is uh, far from absolutely clear. 
I don't think that Rawls is attempting to nail things down with specificity. I think he's, he consciously avoids specificity because he doesn't want to be prescriptive. He doesn't want to tell people in advance what they should do. He's trying to develop a way by which people can think through to a decision or set of decisions on which consensus of some sort may ultimately emerge, not final consensus. One of the things he talks about, and I think we probably ought to get into definitional things are very important. One of the things he talks about is primary goods. Did you notice the discussion of primary goods? What do you suppose Rawls means when he talks about primary goods and how important it is that people have primary goods or have access to them? It doesn't just mean cars and refrigerators, things like that. What are primary who, who don't yeah. have, have the book? It's, um, it's, it's interesting. It definitely is not cars and goods. They're abs, abstract goods. That's right, um, abstract. Let me, basic rights the, and liberties. Do you want the section number? Is that what you're looking for? It's 17.2, but yes. I do think that some don't have the book, and maybe I just quickly. Well, let, me, let me read a little bit to you okay, here. Otis can give them to you. Okay, 17.2 is where he really begins to explain primary goods. Let's, let's, just, let's just look at what he says here. He says, we distinguish five kinds of such goods, primary goods. One, the basic rights and liberties. <laughs> Those are, pri- are primary goods, basic rights and liberties. Freedom of thought and liberty of conscience and the rest. These rights and liberties are essential institutional conditions required for the adequate development and full and informed exercise of the two moral powers he's talked about earlier. Secondly, freedom of movement and free choice of occupation. So free choice of occupation is a primary good against a background of diverse opportunities. Three, powers and prerogatives of offices and positions of authority and responsibility. In other words, the opportunity to seek positions of that kind. Four, income and wealth. What do you know? Income and wealth turn out to be primary goods. Sure. Understood as all-purpose means to having what he calls an exchange value, generally needed to achieve a wide range of ends, whatever they may be. And finally, the social bases of self-respect. Social bases of self-respect as a primary good understood as those aspects of basic institutions normally essential if citizens are to have a lively sense of their worth as persons. And by the way, Rawls keeps coming back to the worth of the individual, the dignity of the individual. He has an almost idealized view of the individual here. But he says it over and over again, so he must mean it. Self-confidence. He wants people to advance their ends with self-confidence. So primary goods, something which he says people are entitled to and must have in a system of justice as fairness, as he calls it. Yes. Do you understand these as being put in the order of of their value ultimately if if we're going to determine if we're going to put people on a scale based on mm-hmm. their possession of these abstract goods um you know you've got uh, income you and notice w- that money is not at the top no it's means. not but it's above the social bases of self-respect that's true and i just wondering you i don't know, know how that, do we apply this set of standards to i don't know that determine ranks, who are the least of us i'm not sure that he ranks these carl he, he lists them but does he say that they're ranking? He's ranking them? I don't think he's ranking them here. I don't think so. Other questions that may arise here. Let's talk a little bit more about the difference principle. What would motivate people to adhere to or to adopt the difference principle? Why would Rawls expect people to have the capacity to implement the difference principle? Do you see that Rawls sees this as to everyone's advantage? He thinks the difference principle is the best way. This is just my way. This is my rough way of putting it. I think he sees the difference principle as the best way for everyone in the society to advance. Well, it seems to me that the most powerful people in a society, if they're using their heads, 
must realize that they're probably not the smartest. Right. That if you don't think so? No, no, I'm I'm agreeing with you. Okay. I'm agreeing they, with they you. must realize that they're yeah. probably not the smartest people in the society, or, or the smartest about everything that society needs. Therefore, if, they, if there are disadvantaged people who are not given the opportunity to maximize their potential, the whole ship will eventually, well, it won't be as good as it could be. Mm-hmm. That's what I think he's talking about. But he doesn't really come out and say it, does he? No. Everyone benefits through the operation of the difference principle. And the least advantaged, and I think this may have been what you were suggesting, the, the least advantaged would tend to be the most vulnerable people in the society. If they founder completely, if they are undermined, what does that do to the rest of society? Looking at some of his comments, some of his concluding comments on the difference principle, he says, when used in a certain way, distinctions of gender and race give rise to further relevant positions to which a special form of the difference principle applies. And by the way, the difference principle would apply, would it not, to the disadvantaged, many of whom would be representatives of racial and ethnic minorities, and uh, you might get gender discrimination in here as well. We hope that in a well-ordered society, under favorable conditions, with the equal basic liberties and fair equality of opportunity secured, gender and race would not specify relevant points of view. Race and gender, you don't know in the, in the original position, you don't know whether you belong to a racial minority or whether you belong to an ethnic group that has been disfavored, whether you're male or female, whether you are wealthy or poor, whether you are smart or not so smart. You don't know any of those things. And therein, again, lies some of the appeal of the veil of ignorance and the conditions that people must consider before being willing to buy into any particular system. If you don't know who you are or what you, um, what you have, then uh, you are likely to think twice before buying into any particular approach, let's say a system that would automatically permit property owners to have certain advantages over others. From behind the veil of ignorance, you would be reluctant to make that assumption. Yes? I have a lot of trouble with this veil of ignorance. And uh, and on page 48, I think in the second paragraph... Is this in part one? No, sir, it's in part two. Page 48. Page 48 part Second paragraph begins with the principles of justice are adopted. What number are you at? I can can follow you more. This would be... 13.6. Let me see if I can find it. Go ahead and read it. Well... It, it looks to me as though the veil gradually drops. Now, let me read this. It's gradually lifted, right? Dropped, yeah. It, okay. It says, in the first, the first stage, parties adopt the principles of justice behind a veil of ignorance. Stage two, constitutional convention. Stage yes, three, yes. legislative state. Stage right. four, rules are applied by administrators, blah, 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 blah. Right. At that point, in this last stage, everybody has complete access to all the facts. That's it seems right. to me the veil is either parted or dropped. Or this is per- the lifting of the veil. Yeah. And I, I'm glad what you... Do you... What do you think of that? Well, I think this, this is his way of describing how, ultimately, the political system is built. The gradual lifting of the veil. It, the four-stage sequence. Let me see if I can find it. I'm looking. But I'll find it here in a second. But that is, what you've described here is the lifting of the veil. And that is a very important part of the Rawlsian theory. He describes what is done at each of these stages. What happens at the constitutional stage? That's, that's stage two, isn't it? Yes. And yes. What, what happens at that stage? Does he tell us? It says limitations on knowledge available to the parties are progressively relaxed in the next three stages, stage of constitutional convention. And I just read that it's like our constitutional conventions. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't go into uh, detail there. Yep. You know, in that, in that course that Professor Sandel teaches at Harvard, in which he uses John Rawls a lot. Yep. It seems to me this veil of ignorance is the thing those kids, and yours truly, has the most trouble with. Yeah, the veil of ignorance. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, it's ju- it, it is just an explanatory device. The idea is to imagine what kind of society you would prefer and to start out assuming that you're working from behind the veil of ignorance when you don't know who you are. 
the first thing is that you don't know who you are. You don't know what your advantages or disadvantages are going to be in a given society. And I think I finally found this thing. You don't know who you are. You don't, you don't know what your advantages or, or disadvantages are going to be. And you want to develop a system in which your interests, your, your self-interest would be protected. Rawls understands that people do pursue their own self-interest. And I think that's one reason that he, that he uses this veil of ignorance idea. It's um, certainly a refinement on the old notion of a state of nature, which is what Locke and, and Rousseau talked about. But it is a difficult concept. It is, it, it is difficult. And, and he, he talks about the, the four-stage sequence of removing, gradually removing or lifting the veil of ignorance. And you move into a a constitutional convention stage in which the basic precepts of the society, I guess, or government are identified. Then you move into a legislative stage in which presumably policies are made. And finally, you you are in an administrative stage, which includes judicial interpretation. All that is pretty vague. But the idea, once you reach the administrative or the final stage, the, the veil is completely lifted. Here I've got it. Let me see if I can make a little better sense by just reading a few comments about the four-stage sequence. In the first stage, the parties adopt the principles of justice behind a veil of ignorance, the, the principles of justice, I suppose, the two principles that we've been talking about. Limitations on knowledge available to the parties are progressively relaxed in the next three stages the stage of the Constitutional Convention, the legislative stage in which laws are enacted as the Constitution allows and as the principles of justice require and permit, and the final stage in which the rules are applied by administrators and followed by citizens generally and the Constitution and laws are interpreted by members of the, of the judiciary. Rawls is a little vague, by the way, on the judiciary. Um, we, we've had discussions in class as to whether Rawls endorses judicial review. Does he recognize the power of a court to invalidate a law on the basis of its unconstitutionality? I kind of think he does, but he doesn't really say so. At this last stage, everyone has complete access to all the facts. Otis? Yes. I get what he's talking about here, but isn't this a Rawlsian utopia? I mean, oh, isn't, yeah. the this, whole isn't thing, this where, the whole you know, the whole utopian. idealistic yes. concept just takes over? Maybe that's what yeah. the gentleman at the other side of the room is wrestling yes. with, too, is, you know, we all start off knowing where we are. So this this principle that there's a veil of ignorance is unreal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it that's is a nice it, way. Of this it. is utopian. This is utopian theory. This is ideal theory. And, and there is a utopian aspect about it. And yet, there may be some concepts here, some insights here, that would be very helpful to policymakers in a democratic society. It might be very useful if legislators, for example, could somehow uh, divorce themselves from specific lobbyists who push them for support of particular projects. It would be nice if legislators could think in terms of laws that benefit everybody, not just a few not just certain individuals. And I think Rawls really is talking about that. But yes, it's utopian, no question about it. Otis, yes. is, it, is it in the line of a thought experiment that could be conducted or even played as a SimCity kind of video game um, or computer game? Um, and, and is that done in classes sometimes when, when it's taught? I imagine some people teach it that way. We never have, but that's not a bad idea. In other words go through certain, how would, how would you set it up? Go through certain proposals and so, see if they, if they conform to Rawlsian theory? I think so, and you'd yeah. have to set it up like a second life game or mm-hmm. something like that. Those mm-hmm. of you who do computer games more than I do would be better at, at It's a neat idea. It's a neat idea. The four-stage sequence is an interesting way of looking at moving from the original position, which is so opaque and difficult to understand, moving gradually from the original position to full disclosure, full understanding. Uh, Otis, is, is that helpful? Yes. Um, 
You know, my, my question is whether we, to use the idealist approach, we should put ourselves in the original position with the veil try to imagine unlifted yes at every stage pre-constitutional convention constitutional convention legislative process and this and the such yep that that's the ideal the recognition that at some point in time we know more about the governmental structure that doesn't mean we necessarily know more about about where we will be as individuals by virtue of gender, education, wealth, and the such, and so you could still use it. I'm just wondering if what we basically have here in the veil of ignorance is a situation with maximal risk to the decision-maker as to what the outcomes will be for them. They could either have great wealth and status and everything else, or they could be on death's doorstep. I assume we know of our mortality... Well, um, I'm not at, so at sure. least that much, and we know that we're alive. <laughs> at least, um, presumably, we're not dead but, when the. But I think the assumption that we, in in the beginning, in a veil of ignorance, would agree to a system in which we might be the least advantaged, but know that the structure is going to is, is at least going to make us a little bit better mm-hmm. that would depend not just on the fact that the system would add value to us it would be the question as to how much and how that related to how bad off we could be yep. and it almost presumes risk adverseness by as a characteristic of human nature and i don't think that's probably necessarily a universal characteristic. There are there are people who are, are risk adverse. There yeah, are people who are risk neutral. That's right. And then the, now we may not know which ones we are, but I would assume that most people would not agree to a social system or a legal system unless they had some confidence that they would at least be a survivor if they were down at the bottom. There has to be some minimal level of yes. social cushioning at the bottom before a risk-adverse person would agree to a system that favored others and permitted uh, inequality within the system. But don't don't you think that's where the difference principle, again, comes into play? The the difference principle does recognize inequalities, but they're inequalities that tend to favor the least advantaged. That is, the, 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 the differences that exist are essentially identified with the least advantage maximally so that so that the person who is least advantaged gets maximum benefit but i my guess is there are people in this room who might choose a system in which they bore risk of sure. extreme loss in return extreme for loss a prospect or extreme gain. Of really big yeah. gain because their risk prefers and there mm-hmm. would be others who would take just the opposite view and Therefore, I have trouble applying the veil of ignorance because mm-hmm. I question the assumption that all human beings are the same and would strike the same calculus, come up with the same conclusion under the veil of ignorance. So you question whether there, there could be such a thing as equality, citizen equality? In the Rawlsian sense of the term? In the sense that everybody would agree to it, which is the universality, the... Mm-hmm. the you know, purported claim of universality in the theory. We do play a little game um, going back to that question about uh, how to approach this material, talking about risk in which we uh, envisage an urn filled with uh, four kinds of balls, gold, silver, bronze, I believe, and lead (laughs) with different values from lead with Number one up to, I think platinum is, is the top. It's, it's uh, lead, uh, silver, gold, and platinum, with platinum being the most valuable. What would people choose? They can, uh, you know, draw from the urn. Would they be happy with um, the two middle choices? Or would they want to go for the, for the best choice, the, the risk-oriented person? person who, who, who likes to take risks. That's one way to look at um, what we're talking about. Otis, just to follow up on that, there, yeah. are, there are a number of other fields that I think can inform this discussion that, yes. that we're having and that Lisa really started. Um, I'm thinking in particular about 
trust games that are used in mm -hmm. psychology uh, mm -hmm. to assess, for example, risk aversion and trust in certain scenarios. And if you posited certain factors that each of the members of the group who were being tested had, you could measure trust in certain circumstances and risk aversion in certain circumstances. Similarly, I think game theory also has a, a role to theory, play yes. here. And, and, uh, and I think, you know, Lisa's allusion to using computer games is part of that. You know, if you put people in certain positions not knowing what the other will do or what the other has or what they have in relation to the other, how will they play the game? So just yeah. some additional thoughts. You know, I think in that first section, he mm -hmm. talks, in fact, I'd read it twice. Where are you reading now? I, I, I'm referring to the whole first section. Oh, he's part talking two. About, he's okay. not talking about individuals, it seems to me. No, he's talking and, about and re it, maybe representative persons. Well, he's talking about whole societies. Yeah. He makes the point several times. Not talking about relationships between individual peoples. Not right. talking about morality. I'm not talking. I'm talking about a whole society, the body politic. Right. I think every time I lose sight of that and start reading that as though I were talking to you or to you or to you, I miss what he's trying to say. He's, he's not talk talking about right. me and you. He's That's talking right. about the body politic. That's right. The body politic. Yes. All of whom are people and all of whom are presumed to have agreed to something. So or I, most of them. Yeah. I'm just wondering, from a yeah. historical uh, point of view of what happened in our country, if uh, when the Constitution was there, there the only, the way that basically passed was uh, based on the promise that we'd have the Bill of Rights. That's correct. Um, it would not have been adopted had it not been right. promised. That's and and I'm just wondering if that isn't the sense he's talking about of lifting the veil. I think you, yeah, I think you can draw some analogy there. Let's think back to that period of our history. We had a constitution that was drafted and signed by a small group of white males in Philadelphia, all of whom were property owners. Um, they presumed property qualifications for voting. They set up some basic procedural rights in the, in the original Constitution, a very few of them, habeas corpus, restrictions against bills of attainder, ex post facto laws. But they didn't have a complete Bill of Rights. They thought about it five days before the end of the convention and decided it was not a good idea because it had been there too long anyway and they were ready to go home. So they left, they punted on the question of a Bill of Rights. Thomas Jefferson immediately, writing from Paris to James Madison, said, you've left out the Bill of Rights. It's a fatal flaw. They got into the ratifying conventions, and very, very quickly it became clear that key states like Virginia and New York would not ratify this document unless it contained a Bill of Rights. And so it was promised, a sort of agreement in advance, that if the states ratified this document, the Bill of Rights would be proposed in Congress. That did happen in 1789 and, and was ratified in 1791. And that Bill of Rights, which you're suggesting might have, might have suggested something of the lifting of the veil, the Bill of Rights turned out to be far more far-reaching than anybody at that time assumed it would be. The Bill of Rights originally applied only to the national government. That was one thing. Only the national government. Did not, did not impose limitations on the states. The Supreme Court, some 40 or 50 years later, wound up saying that. And it was not until the 14th Amendment was passed, after the Civil War, that basic rights, liberty rights, procedural rights of criminal defendants, the right to counsel, uh, First Amendment freedoms of speech, press, religion, and assembly, came gradually to be applied to the states through the 14th Amendment. That was a big change. That could not have been anticipated by those who drafted the Bill of Rights in all likelihood, nor could the broadening of the democratic principle where property qualifications disappear gradually over time, where race ceases to be a qualification for voting where sex ceases to be a qualification for voting through constitutional amendment. All those things happen. That's a kind of an unfolding, you might say. Now let me go back and ask this question. And maybe I'm off base by asking it, but I think it's one way to get at 
what Rawls is trying to tell us. What could you come up with as a basis for a democratic society that would be as protective of a wide range of individual rights and liberties, what could you come up with that would be as effective or perhaps even more effective than the Rawlsian approach? Can you think of any, of any way to approach this that would be better than, say, the original position idea and the emergence of these basic shared constitutional rights? Professor? Yes, sir. Didn't uh, Rawls have a colleague named uh, Robert Nozick, I think? Yes, and Nozick was, was a um, uh, contemporary of Rawls. Sure. And he proposed an alternative framework uh, in... Taking rights seriously? Well... No, that's, that's a different book. That's a different well, book. Well, his initial response yep. to a theory of justice was, I, th- I believe, anarchy, the state, and utopia. That's right. Anarchy, state, and utopia. Right. And his approach was more lock-in and mm-hmm. starting with a state of nature and then you only you very carefully and in a limited way define powers of the state I, i'm not prepared yeah. to argue that that's a superior framework but yeah. it is it is an alternative is it not yeah that's one alternative um is it as comprehensive as, as rawls I, I don't know I, I'm, I'm really not that familiar with, with that i've seen I've seen the book, I've looked at it a time or two, but I have not read it in as much depth as I've read Rawls. Has anyone come up with as comprehensive a theory as John Rawls with respect to organizing a democratic society? Not that they couldn't do it, but, you know, Rawls is responding. I I guess we should have said this at the outset, and Professor Cook said it last week. Rawls is responding in part to utilitarianism to, a, to a, a theory which had its political ramifications uh, of the greatest good for the greatest number, which de-emphasized, to some extent at least, the value of the individual. Rawls certainly answers that. Every individual, for Rawls, every individual is important. People are not means to an end. In that sense, I guess he's Kantian. But I don't know of anyone who has come up with, with as extensive, comprehensive a scheme of um, social organization in a democratic setting as Rawls has. And I don't, every time I try to think of alternatives, I'm, you know, I'm sort of at a loss. Now, there's a lot more in uh, part two of this book. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about in this part that we haven't gone over as yet? The basic structure. You understand, you understand what Rawls means by the basic structure? of society, background considerations. The basic structure within which these decisions are made turns out to be very important. Basic structure is the primary subject for justice's fairness. He looks at it from several angles. Basic structure doesn't turn anybody on, obviously. (laughs) Just a couple of thoughts. I believe that we have seen through the discussion this evening, just how complex Rawls' ideas are and just how many questions they arouse, what I would suggest is that you not give up on your reading of Rawls because he does have answers for most of the questions that we have presented here this evening. They are roundabout answers some of the time. They are are not as clearly stated or as concise as we would like for them to be, but There is a lot of richness in this material. I find every time I read Rawls that I learn something new, something different comes out, and it's amazing. We didn't get get a chance to talk about a few ideas that I had hoped we might get into. For example, the notion of the loyal opposition, which Rawls recognizes as an important aspect of democratic uh, society. There's much here, and it is worth careful consideration you, you have raised very good questions here tonight. I'm afraid that I have not always had the answers for you, but I'm grappling with Rawls just as, just as everyone else is. When I read this material, I, I feel challenged, and I keep coming back to it. Uh, I want to thank you all for being here, and we'll, we'll take it up next week. Iris Goodwin will come in and talk to us a little bit more about the original position and maybe clarify some of the points that were raised this evening. 
So thanks very much for your being here. Otis, thank you very much. All right. That was an episode of a community study of Justice as Fairness by John Rawls in a five-part series sponsored by Knox County Public Library and the Baker Center for Public Policy. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License, copyright 2010, by Knox County Public Library. To find the other recordings in this series, plus more library podcasts, please visit knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.